This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Joe? Thanks for joining us, man. Not a problem. Excited to be here with you guys today. So you're in town for Nate, right? Uh, no, I was here uh, at an IADC event this morning. Oh, yeah, that's right. I already asked you that. Yeah, yeah he told me. Joe he told Josh me yesterday. He uh, left Austin at five o'clock this morning to drive Ooh. to Houston and driving back tonight. <laughs> so how was IADC? It was cool. I was there at their Spark Tank event that they do every quarter. There's a couple of cool, cool little things being pushed forward and a really engaging group of guys there. So it was pretty neat. Sweet. Good. So when do we, when do we first meet you? Was that a few months ago? When did we first get linked up? I don't know how. I think it was on LinkedIn. It's funny yeah. because I think we put out our, our form for our Shark Tank event and he reached out. But then okay. you were on someone else's podcast. You were on Patrick's podcast, yeah. the, H, the HSC podcast. Okay. And Julie was listening to it, reviewing it. And she's like, hey, you should reach out to this Joe guy. So I added him on Instagram, which I never had any yeah, oil contacts that. on Instagram. <laughs> I, I, I thought that was pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm all about I'm all about the grin. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, reached out to him there. And, uh, yeah, he drove up for our last happy hour and just talking sense. So he's got a really cool software, OpsLock. Yeah. He's the CEO, founder. So why don't you tell us a little bit about OpsLock? What are you guys uh, working on? It's HSE software. Yeah, we're focused mostly in the HSE space. Uh, essentially, what we're doing is we're taking all the repetitive paperwork that the guys on the front lines hate to do, making that a more simple process for them, and then providing managers on the other sides the sort of insights that empower them to intervene before the risks that we all know sort of happen in oil and gas, but before those risks turn into disasters. Yeah, it's funny how much paperwork the oil field has. You know, every time you're out in the field, you're like, there's got computers. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, so I, just, just, just like literal paperwork that gets stuck in like a binder or in a drawer <laughs> somewhere and nobody ever finds it. And they're like, ah, we don't know what to do with it. And, and so with you guys, so if like an investigation is underway, you have like an audible like audit trail that you yeah. can go back and look through. But is that the main value proposition or is it? Well, I think just to, to loop back on what Colin said there, anybody who spent time in the field, we all know, you know, all the eye rolls that happen as everybody's dealing with the increasing stack of paperwork. So I thought, especially in the health and safety side, where, that, where that's a pain point for everybody on the operation yeah. side, there was an opportunity to not only sort of make that data, like you said, a little more traceable in the event of something going wrong, but also provide managers sort of re reduce the latency for their visibility of that information because right now i mean it's it's two to four weeks typically before anybody sees this information and if you have to make a strategic decision as a manager that uh it's no good to you if it's four weeks too late how did you discover this problem tell us a little about yourself were you a field hand is this when you first came in contact with the problems that H hse had with a, a paperwork issue or just give us a little bit of background on your previous uh your previous life before being a founder yeah, totally. So I, I come from a little different angle than you guys. My background's more so in the offshore side. Came up uh, similar to Patrick, actually. I was a sort of a, a, I'm a professional seafarer. So I'm, I'm licensed as a master mariner, which means I can be captain of any ship in the world, which is pretty much <laughs> is just fun to say in a bar. Now, <laughs> I, now, now I need a ship. Now I yeah. need a boat. <laughs> exactly. So uh, right, look, we're going to go get a boat. Joe's going to be the captain. <laughs> and then we're going to shoot her. Uh, I'm on a boat music video. <laughs> yeah. So so I started off from sort of coming from that maritime perspective, but the best jobs in the maritime field were always in oil and gas. So spent the entirety of my seagoing career in oil and gas. Ended up in the ultra deep water infrastructure development business where I was in a management role and 
when the last downturn happened, they fired the, the sort of onboard head of health and safety, took all the guys who worked for him and said, they work for, for me now. So I had Look to at me. I'm the captain now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Hey, we need to get some memes made of that. We need a picture of Joe before he leaves here and get a I'm the captain now meme. Yeah. So anyway, I saw I, I went from being sort of a project execution guy to having sort of management level health and safety responsibilities and seeing the problems, not only of the, the headaches that it causes for the guys in the field, but also how much it falls apart in the way that this data is sort of tracked and managed on the other side. So saw a big opportunity there to, to make a change. Cool. And you said that you're from Canada. I, I am indeed. Yeah. Okay. So how did you get transitioned from Canada into the oil field? What part of Canada are you from? Alberta? So, no, it's no, always a, not Alberta. Always okay. a tough question for me to answer. Sort of the Eastern half. I've, okay. Uh, I've, I've moved, moved so, uh, quite a bit. Newfoundland. That's that's the last place I lived in Canada. It's uh, uh, so I broke out for a Canadian drilling company right out of high school. So I worked with all Canadians. Really? And uh, shout out to Chris Rose, my driller. He's from Newfoundland. And when that motherfucker drinks beer, you cannot understand a word that yeah. he's saying. Yeah. So I, I speak fluent Newfoundland. Do you? Um, <laughs> that's where that's where I went to college, and I lived there for about ten years. Then I ended up hopping over while I was working offshore and had a lot of free time. Relocated uh, to Portugal very briefly and then ended up here in Texas. How'd you end up in Portugal? I was working in the oil field, sort of working for a company that would let me live anywhere in the world. And, <laughs> like, yeah, uh, why not? Portugal sounds nice. Why not Portugal? It was really easy to move there. Portugal has some some really nice financial arrangements for expats <laughs> who choose to work yeah. there or live there. So uh, a little bit of a tax haven, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's it's not tax evasion; it's tax avoidance. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I've been Perfect. to Canada once, and I just found it so odd. I remember he says that Canadians are so nice, but it was like it was eerily nice. Mm. Like everywhere we went, everybody just wanted to randomly strike up conversations with me, and I'm like, and all they all they do like, is say I, sorry. I didn't really want to talk to strangers, and they're just like, oh hey, what are you doing here? You know? <laughs> well, I, I just want to take an opportunity here to say sorry for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the cliche Canadian sorry. Yeah. No, that's uh. That's it. And I mean, like you said, I mean, uh, spending a lot of time in Newfoundland, especially in my college years, not only are they friendly, but but they like to party pretty hard. Yeah, they do. They do. That's so uh, what was the process to becoming the uh, master ship captain, whatever you <laughs> want to call it? So you so you graduated school. Is there like is there like a, this uh, licensing process or what does yeah, that look like? So it's sort of similar to the way uh, airline pilots get certified. Okay. So I did a college program, a four-year program, where in that four years, you have to spend 12 months at sea. Uh, so as whatever, a 20-year-old, that's, that sucks. Mm -hmm. um, but did that. Uh, that then licenses you as sort of a junior officer, second mate, third mate. And then you go through a series of sort of you have to do a bunch of exams and then have a certain amount of time in the field in certain levels of responsibility. And then you can write your next series of exams. So. Mm. Over a couple of years, I, I did it just about as fast as you can do it. I was lucky enough to sort of get promoted relatively quickly and, and ended up in a, in a role of, you know, I was second in command of a, a asset with 200 people on it. So it was, a, it was a cool position to be in at, I think I was 25 when I first ended up in that role. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Do you guys so, have like pirate procedures? It's funny you should mention that. So I, uh, I think it might have been last year, actually. I was taking, we did a loadout, uh, umbilical loadout in Rosyth in Scotland. And then in one trip at work, I took the boat from Scotland to India. And during that time, we went through the Gulf of Aden off mm -hmm. Somalia. 
And I was also the, the ship security officer. So a part of my responsibilities, not only would he t- did we take a team of guys on, I think four guys with automatic weapons, but we also, I had to literally surround the whole ship with barbed wire because uh, one of the concerns is, especially these offshore ships, you're not that far off the water. Make and scale up the they're, side. They're yeah. worth a lot of money. So there was some concern. So we just went real fast. So were these armed guards just like, just hired hands? Like private, black, black, private black water con- yeah. contractors, yeah. To be honest, they were a bit pudgier than I expected them to be. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> typically, these they were they were ex-British military guys, but since the Somali pirate thing kicked off, a lot of them have spent huge amounts of time sitting around. You know, n- nothing really happens. Yeah. Um, so they were uh, they were some characters, that's for sure. <laughs> so in between fighting off pirates and now fast forward today with ops lock, <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, when, How did when, when, did, when did you start Opslot? So I had, or I should say this: When did you quit your job and start going so on this full time? There's a bit of overlap. I had the idea. I'd say back 2014-2015. Spoke to a few people about it, and then it sort of fizzled out. I think, like many entrepreneurs can relate, it's, it's sometimes tough if you're a non-technical guy to find those those technical people. Very much. Yep. So. I'd sort of forgotten about it. I was making great money, sort of having a lot of fun mm-hmm. uh, working in the field. And then in 2016, I was, you know, I had six months vacation. So I was always looking for fun things to do. So I was in Bali in Indonesia on a coding retreat because I just thought there might be some cool people there. And the Brian, who is now my co-founder, he was one of the mentors on the retreat. So we met then. I had to come up with something to be my project on this retreat. And I said, oh, I have this idea for this sort of oil and gas health and safety product. And over a few beers one night, he said, you know, I, I previously built some compliance software. I think we could probably make something happen here. So that's pretty fucking cool. You're having a problem finding a technical developer, yeah. technical co-founder, get your ass to Bali and find you someone, go to a coding retreat. Yeah. I mean, that's a very unconventional way. Yeah. Of, I the the problem is also a like... and a co-founder. Wow, so, so yeah, he that's knocked crazy, out yeah. <laughs> two birds with one stone. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the problem's also flipped as well. So if I've seen many times where there's a technical co-founder who has no soft skills whatsoever and yeah. can't necessarily talk to people and can't really interface <laughs> yeah. with them and God doesn't really have the business smarts. Most of the time they can't talk to you people. Know, engineers typically, they're brilliant at what they do, but they think inside the box, right? Yep. And so having somebody like yourself on the business side to be able to you know, relay that vision, to be able to actually go out there and pitch is equal, if not more important sometimes. Yeah. Well, right? I, I mean, I go to a lot of startup events where you hear the sort of non-technical co-founders talk about, what do I do? You know, If I have no money, how do I get a co-founder to, to build an MVP so I can raise some money? And I think the advice that you often hear is that if you're expecting to be the sort of champion of your business and you can't convince somebody to work for you, you're probably right. off to a bad start. One of the biggest yeah. jobs of a CEO of a company is to sell the story yeah. of your, of your mm-hmm. company or product. And you have to have your team members believe in that. So you have to be able to sell people on that vision, yeah. have them feel like they're a part of something. And that's Sweat how, equity, man. Yeah. Somebody's working for free. They got to get something out of it, uh, you know. Yep. To- totally. And that's I mean, your first sale, really. Exactly. You know, sell them. Exactly. And and I think it's there's a bit of art to it. I'm I'm sure if you spoke to Brian now, he might he might be a little upset at the product that we built is much bigger and much more complicated than the one I told you we were building. <laughs> but uh, that's all that's, part of the game. That, that, that's how you have to hook them in. Like, exactly. yeah, we're just going to build this little thing, and then um, you know, two years later, it ends up being a big thing. Yeah. So, what are some of the challenges you guys? 
haven't done any funding yet. Yep. Um, you are going for your first round of funding, working on that. But up to this point, you've been bootstrapped. And I've seen your software. It's a nice looking software. What have been some of the it's biggest? It's so much more than I would expect being bootstrapped, you know? Yeah. Usually usually you push out like an MV, 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 MVP, <laughs> you know? And so I think a lot of people get caught up on instantly raising funds. Like, and we've seen it with like the ICO craze. It's like, oh, we have an idea, throw it on white paper, raise $100 million. Well, it's like, people it's, overlook it's, almost like it's almost like startups treated as a rite of passage. Yeah. Like we have to go get funding. It's the thing that we're supposed to do. Yeah. And Man, if you can bootstrap for a while, if you can retain and, equity in your company and you're able to, you know, go out and close some deals and stuff, it, you can always go raise funding later whenever you need some growth capital, you know, to kind of take you from, you know, one million to ten million, whatever that may be. But you don't necessarily always need funding right off the bat. So you guys bootstrapped. How was that process? Well, I mean, certainly not easy. Yeah. I mean, if you know, you always hear entrepreneurs, especially ones who've had some success, they talk about how hard it is. And I think it ultimately comes down to, to this challenge, sort of, uh, I've heard it explained as building a castle in the sky. How do you build something with no money? And how do you raise, you know, raise money or customers if you don't have something built? And I think that the way that plays out for people is always going to be a little bit different. You yeah, know, every, every case is different. Yeah. But I mean, bootstrapping for us, I think due to the nature of the solution, you know, health and safety has become so ingrained in the public image of oil and gas companies. I knew from spending time in the field that that what we had had to be pretty robust mm-hmm. b- before we brought it to the market because nobody was going to be okay with mm-hmm. losing health and safety data and things like that. It has such an impact on tender. Yeah, it's one of the biggest else. business drivers. Exactly. Especially in yeah, industry. it's actually one of the best uh, targets to attack, in yeah. my opinion, because remember when I... I made that post about evolving and yeah, the evolver and embrace, die. The, the infamous evolver die, die yeah. post. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. I made this video on LinkedIn. It got like sixty thousand views and like four hundred comments of just people just fucking talking shit to me. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, one of the biggest comments that I would I would see one of the most repetitive themes is, you know, it takes a while to embrace new technology because in this industry. If you have new technology that fails, it means someone could die. And usually they're referencing, you know, downhole technology when they're talking about that. But the industry is so focused on safety. You know, it's number one priority, especially when I when I first started roughnecking, you know, roughly a, a decade ago, safety, even at that point, wasn't the biggest, biggest deal. I, I remember my second day out on the rig. They stopped by the convenience store, picked up a case of uh, a beer, a 30-pack, went out there roughnecking in shorts, no shirts, and flip-flops. Yeah. I got fucking video of it. <laughs> <laughs> and in that time, just in that short amount of time, safety has just skyrocketed to the top of priorities. And so it, it's a really good target to attack in my mind because I think companies are willing to embrace technology that bolsters safety. Yeah. I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, not only is safety becoming a huge part of what everyone's focused on. I mean, almost every oil and gas company on the, the main nav bar of their homepage, you're going to see HSE or QHSE or mm-hmm. HSEQ. Yeah, they're highlighting it. Yeah. Um, and what I saw sort of in the field was that when you really drill down into these things, when everything's on pen and paper, you're, you're never able to confirm, you know, when were things done? We, we were chatting before the podcast and you... You were talking about the various ways things get pencil whipped. And, you know, I, I think for me, everything from somebody looking at a JSA or a risk assessment and somebody told me a story about a foreman who wrote on the last page, 
if anybody reads this, I'll give them a hundred dollars, which anybody. Well, yeah, the, the paperwork out in the field is a fucking joke. Exactly. I mean, a lot of people aren't going to say that, but I will. I've been the guy out there doing, doing the paperwork. Yeah. You have your, your toolbox talk at, you know, <laughs> six o'clock in the morning when you get to location, you have your JSA, not a single person reads the JSA. They just flip to the back page, sign it. And then most large EMPs, actually most EMPs in general, you know, they're like, we want one stop card a day from everyone on location. And I think stop cards are one of the most overrated things. You know, everyone treats it as this innovative system, but it's not, you know, it, it, it's making everybody pencil whips those too. They, they literally, the field hands will make up things that they So for people who don't know, what's a stop card? So a stop card is, you know, they get called a few different things. Stop cards. Do you know some other Behave, names for them? I can't yeah, even. They're, they're all a little bit different, but yeah, they're, they're, observation. The, con- the concept's whatever. the same. And what you do is, Say that Jake, you and I are out on a rig, and I see you being a dumbass. You're being unsafe. Maybe you're walking around location under a suspended load, and I go on there, and I'm like, I saw field hand walking under suspended load. That was that was the problem that I saw. And then you go write a correction, a correction, and so my correction was told that field hand that he was sitting under a suspended load and get the hell out of the way. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a stop card. And there's also positive reinforcements too. Like if I saw you doing something safe, I could write one about something that you're doing safe. And the theory is that they take these stop cards and they get sent back to the office, to the safety department, and they're able to read these cards and analyze and hmm. pretty much make analytical decisions based off of these, these written stop cards. So, you know, and I think you, you're, you're hitting at the, the heart of the issue here in that, you know, people in, in accounting talk about deadweight loss. And that's exactly what, what I saw in these systems is as much as people talk about how innovative even some of the largest companies are in health and safety, when you actually get in the field, it's a lot of this either goal setting, which it isn't effective, or you have people who, you know, say you don't want your boss to get mad at you. You're going to do whatever, he's, you know, whatever standard he's told you to meet, but you find out, hey, it's probably easier instead of taking 10 minutes before I do every job to fill out the paperwork. I'm just going to stop work at 4.30 instead of 5 and do it all at once. And when you really think about that, you know, because it's so easy to just change the time from 4.30 to 9 a.m. or whatever time Mm -hmm. you were supposed to do the paperwork, what that means is not only the health and safety program is having no effect on the actual thoughts and behaviors of your employees, but the company is investing money in the, the time of for, their employees. For feel-good metrics. For, for metrics that mean nothing yep. because there's no way to verify that sort of baseline data. So not only are they losing money on that investment, but they're then using these totally bogus statistics to make strategic business decisions. And it's all meaningless. It's all just just a big ruse. So a lot of what we're trying to do is to add some traceability to that, add things like the screen time that somebody spent looking at a JSA, if they looked at it for one second and you get that information in, in early enough, that's a culture you can correct as a manager. You can be a leader and say, listen, boys, I see you guys are pencil whipping this and, and I don't want that to happen. Let's Very find cool. ways to, to dig into that instead of just being reactive four weeks after the fact to say we need to, we need to do better. So Yeah, so yeah. that's one, you know, there, there's a couple of different aspects to ops lock in. I've had... Uh, you know, I've been able to take a look at the software. And so you have the aspect from the field where you're eliminating the paper, but that's not even, that's not the cool part of the software. The cool part of the software is the, the backend analytics yep. where we can really start to, you know, not even 
say that you had a incident on a rig or on a location and they go to do their incident investigation, they can go back, look at the data and start saying, okay, what, what might've went wrong there? But not only that, predict in the future, you know, Opslot can come and say, Hey, you know, last time that you had these parameters, you had a, a, an incident. So you're starting to reach those parameters. Maybe you should take a look at this and alert you before the accident even happens. Yeah. So, I mean, to take a step back, literally the first day I got promoted into a management role where I became the guy responsible for incident investigations. Uh, I was on uh, working in the field and we had a $30 million subsea component get hit by a crane. And I was actually somewhere else and I got a call. Hey man, you got to come do an incident investigation. It was my very first one ever. What I came to find out was when you're doing these, these investigations, you got to spend a bunch of time finding all this paperwork. And I knew having been the guy. It's pretty typical in all, all aspects of oil and gas. It's data aggregation. Uh, yes. Uh, so, so that's a headache. So yeah, part of what we do with OpsLock is not only allow people on our, on our platform on the web when they're filling out an incident investigation to tag some tasks that were being, you know, being performed at the time. So immediately we know what was happening and who was involved. But like you said, we can do, because we're aggregating all this data on a single platform, we can then do things like push forward to managers when, when certain risk profiles are developing. We can also tie in, we, we have a training records portion, which is optional. I mean, a lot of companies have other platforms for that. But what we can do is, you know, confined space is a big issue in, in the oil field. A lot of guys get hurt or die that way. Mm-hmm. All companies have requirements for training. You know, oh, you need a trained rescue team and you need to have confined space training before you go in the hole. But, you know, I couldn't tell you how many times I had to wait two hours before I started the job because we had to find the Excel sheet that showed who had training and, and all that stuff. So <laughs> what we can do is because that's all stored on our platform, when you click to add your rescue personnel, save downtime, it just shows you the guys who are trained who are on site right now. So exactly. Very cool. Save, save, save downtime, downtime, become more efficient in your actual field operations. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. We do some task planning as well. So we, we can help uh, operators identify, you know, non-productive time or, or efficiency improvements and things like that. But our, our main focus is on health and safety right now. Very cool. How do you feel like you get over the cultural aspect of actual adoption and using this? I mean, so we, we you, you come in, we put a system in place, but how do you how do you feel like you I mean, you would think that, you know, your your health and that your life and <laughs> the, the life of your guys would be enough of an incentive, but you know, like you said, Colin, you kinda go through these kinda go through these motions and stuff. So how do you feel like you influence the cultural aspect to to get the adoption to actually follow these to take it seriously? Yeah. Pretty much. Well, I think to a certain extent there's always going to be some friction. Like you said, yeah. everybody's used to mailing it in on this health. Like humans, humans don't like change, so there'll always be some pushback. Exactly. But I think by by sort of creating some traceability within these systems, that gives you know managers the visibility to know when, when people are, are mailing it in. But ultimately, I see the opportunity is, is to transition this from like a gotcha culture where you're, you're just looking for ways to, to identify when people aren't meeting a certain standard. And I think ultimately that comes down to the fact that managers don't have enough data to actual actually make safety decisions all they can do is enforce a certain level of do enough permits or do enough stop cards yeah let me touch base on that a little bit from a field hand perspective it's not so much that field hands have a problem with any of the safety protocols it's that field hands don't really feel like emps or service companies really care that mm-hmm. much about their safety that these companies are always looking for a scapegoat. Yeah. Like, oh, well, you didn't sign that JSA, so this incident, you know, 
have no liability. And so there's that relationship that you have to take into account yeah. too. If a, if an employee actually feels, and there are some companies out there that preach uh, or they, they practice what they preach in their safety. And I mean, they will do a job slower. They will take the time to get it done right. And the employees appreciate that yep. and they see that it's genuine. So it's not so much that it's more kind of a relationship thing between the employee and the company. Like, hey, this is actually something that's actionable and that can keep us safer and not just uh, going through the routine to, yeah. you know, we, go through checks and balances. You, you hit on a point there that I actually like to bring up. And, and I think you said it really well. I mean, if you've got a bunch of guys who are swinging wrenches every day and they know that, you know, their boss is asking them to fill out a checklist that they're never going to look at, it really does feel like a waste of time. So part of what we're trying to do with the analytics and also with just giving management more visibility is to basically give the guys on the front line the feedback to say, hey, man, you took the time to fill this out, but, you know, we're, we're going to generate some actions. Or we're going to tell you you did a good job or, you know, we're going to analyze that data in a way that that makes it meaningful and, you know, doesn't make guys feel like they're just wasting their time to fill mm -hmm. out a checklist that's going to get thrown in a storage box and get dusty for 20 years. Yep. One uh, one other thing, kind of going back to what Jake said about the adoption. So notice y'all's software runs off of a mobile application, which Jake and I have talked about this quite a bit. It seems like it's hard to get mobile applications to be used in the oil field. Yep. You know, you got... I always want to say Bubba. I don't know why I refer to anytime I talk about a field hand, I'm at Bubba. I've, I've met a lot of Bubba's out there. So you got Bubba out yeah. in the oil field, you know, just covered in dope and mud and grease, whatever. And, you know, everybody carries tally books. Everybody records in tally books. There's been a lot of companies that have tried to come out with mobile applications, none that are really as sophisticated as this. And, you know, they just, they have a hard time taking off for some reason, you know, they don't get used very much. So are you guys seeing more of a, if you have a safety guy on location, like checking in or just like one device, like maybe a, a tablet being used rather than everybody's individual cell phone being mm -hmm. used to check in? How does that process work? I saw that you had a badge. How how does that work? Yeah, so that that's a great question. I think ultimately you you know, I always think back to the time I spent offshore where you've got concerns with electronics, you know, salt water and, and it's gotta be an intrinsically safe device, yeah. Exactly. Yep. So we've got that, you know, some EMPs especially restrict, you know, you can't have any cameras that they don't control. Mm -hmm. So what we've basically done is made our, our platform flexible enough so that if you're on a site where everybody's got a phone and that's not a big deal, um, we run a local server on every web or on every worksite. They can download the app. Doesn't actually take any internet. So if you're in the middle of West Texas or you're offshore, you're you're not going to kill the internet connection. But we've designed the platform so that if you have, for example, like you said, a, a tablet in a change room or or what have you, and you don't want to be bringing electronic devices into the field, we've built out a uh, sort of an ID card system. We've got IDs with just a simple 2D barcode on them. They contain a lot of the information that, that guys are expected to have available anyway. And what we can do is, is when you interface with that tablet in the change room or the safety guy comes out with his intrinsically safe phone, he can scan your badge. He can see what permits you're attached to. He can see what you've been involved in. 
and you can do all that stuff without without yeah so i i see that being a better method than everybody running their own personal device because almost every company now has safety meetings doesn't matter the size of company everyone has safety meetings every morning and having just one one device one tablet that everybody has to check in with their id and you know you can still get all those all those metrics if you see someone checks in with their id how much time they actually spent reading that JSA. Like if you only spent two seconds reading that JSA and you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> yeah. So, so we've, I, you know, having spent time sitting around signing toolbox talks, we've literally built in for things like that, where you're going to have a bunch of guys sitting around a single tablet. We've even streamlined the signing process so that it's even faster to just do a bunch just, of guys once the meeting's over and things like that. So we've done our best to try and make it as, as easy as possible for the boys. I think through our experience, so like with my last company, GDS, where we built a field data capture part, and the reason that we didn't have adoption, so I guess to backtrack, we, we spent a year building that out. because really, yeah. ah, Everybody's going to want to use their phones and their tablets and stuff. And I think it kind of just, we we just were kind of just disconnected from the reality and going out there and, you know, like Colin said, the guys are just covered in, in mud and dirt. That was us last week. Yeah. You know, like, you're, you're, <laughs> it's, it's like we didn't even want to like week, touch yeah. our phones and stuff. You know, we're just covered <laughs> in like oil and red clay and stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. And, you know, I don't, I, I can't really say, I can't really speak to offshore. I've never really been offshore, but I can definitely speak to onshore. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I'd say- Offshore is they're very, like you can't have your cell phone outside of living quarters. They're really very strict. Yeah. yeah. I know for the onshore, that, that was the biggest thing. It was that we just didn't understand that. Yeah. It was just as dirty as it was. And, you know, they're still going to put stuff in tally books. When, right? And that's you something, know. you know, to, to link back to sort of entrepreneurship in this space, you know, we, I think a lot of, you know, we talk about how there's a lot of data aggregation plays and things like that in oil and gas tech. And one of the things that I've found really valuable when I'm talking to, to either people in the tech community or people in the funding community is that I need to remind them that because of these concerns, because of dust and dirt and crappy internet connections and all this stuff, like th- these are a lot of the motivators why digitalization in the oil field has, you know, why we're 10 well. years behind. Yep. And it's finding... Tens being generous. Yeah, maybe 20. (laughs) Uh, But finding these ways that, you know, there are solutions. We just have to be creative about about how we implement it. And uh, we think we found something that that works for Mm -hmm. people. Yeah. So where are you guys at today? And then kind of like what's next for for Offslot kind of looking forward? Yeah. So so like Colin mentioned, we're just gearing up right now for some rollouts uh, here this fall. And then we're doing our first external, external round. We just got on the ground. I, I never answered Colin's question earlier. I just left my my actual sort of day job uh, earlier cool. this year, and we moved myself from Portugal and and my co-founder from from DC. We moved to Austin in May. Any reason you chose Austin? I think a combination of sort of access to the the yeah. industry here in Houston and access to tech talent in Austin. Yeah, we talked about that at the happy hour a little bit about the the lack of tech talent for the cuz we have we have the same tech stack we were talking about this off the yeah. mic. And so yeah, there's definitely a lack of people who are proficient in yeah, the stack here in Houston. Let's talk about that a little bit okay. because you know, that's a a big mission of Jake and I and a, a big mission of this podcast is to kind of bridge that gap between technology and oil and gas because Houston has so much talent in it. And, so and much the, money, so much sidelines so, yeah. that is just so, not being so, used. So much talent, so much money, and the startup scene is just stagnant. It's very still. Then you go two hours out west to Austin, and it, it's it's thriving. Yeah. Um, no money, can, all tech. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. So you know what? What are kind of talk on that a little bit? Some of the benefits that you see being out in Austin and. You know, you're traveling to Houston two or three days a week too. So yeah, you know, you, you definitely have better insight on that than us. You know, yeah. I yeah. go there 
hang on Sixth Street for a day or so, but that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I, I spoke to Jake a little bit about this before. I mean, what I've seen is for, you know, especially for a startup trying to get off the ground in Houston, I think it can be really tough because it's so easy for tech talent of any level to get a, a really high-paying job at one of the big companies here. We've tried to bridge our way into the tech community and plug into that as much as possible through a couple of different mechanisms. We're a member of the Accelerator at Capital Factory, so okay. they give us a great network of sort of engineers looking for jobs and stuff like that. And even though they can't solve a lot of the problems that, that com companies typically have when they join the Accelerator, like customer acquisition, they don't really have a network in oil and gas uh, yeah. in a way that's meaningful for us. What they can do is is more on the software side, the talent side, things like that. They've made those connections. We've also plugged in so we're part of the Texas Venture Labs at or the John Brumley Texas Venture Labs at the McComb School of Business with UT. Mm -hmm. So that's given us a great opportunity through the sort of tech community in Austin to get a bunch of graduate students to come and do market research for us for free. Cool. That's no, awesome. No dilution. Yeah. They just come and help you out. So especially for big enterprise solutions like everything in oil and gas, stuff like that can bring a lot of credibility. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you just look at things like uh, Drilling Info, they're based in Austin. Yep. My buddy Gabe, who's the CEO at MineralSoft, yep, they're, yep. they're in Austin. So yep. we, we saw a couple of people winning out there. So we thought we'd give it a shot. Awesome. So would you suggest, I know you talked a little bit about Capital Factory. Would you suggest that you know that's a good viable option for anybody who needs tech help in the oil and gas tech scene? Yeah. I mean, Capital Factory has been great to us. Their accelerator is really cool if you have a bit of traction to, yeah. to get plugged into uh, we're also members, we're startup members at Station Houston. So they've really done a good job for us on more on that client side of getting us meetings with a few people that they're connected with. And with them, it's, it's you know, it's just a monthly fee. There's no no dilution or anything like that. So the one, combination has been really One cool. more question before we wrap up here. Who do you see as being your target client for the software? Are you guys looking at EMPs or do you see service companies being a uh, low-hanging fruit for you? Great question. Are you trying to figure it out still? <laughs> no, so so I think there's sort of two two sides of it for us. From the conversations that we've had with with EMP executives and with with sort of contractor level executives, the EMPs, they love the safety improvements. They think that's great. But you know, that that's the big benefit for them. We've seen way more enthusiastic engagement from people on the contractor side because for them there's a big implication as far as tenders, getting new work, things like that. If they can show an innovative sort of world-leading health and safety system like this, it's got a big implication for them getting new business. Mm -hmm. Or if they have existing business, potentially argue or negotiating better day rates. Yeah. Because if you can give your client... If your safety rating goes yeah. up, you have yeah. leverage. Yeah. And we've got we've got some great connections in the insurance industry. We're, we're looking at ways that we can actually help our clients get cheaper insurance because we have all this extra data. But really, yeah, that, that sort of high-level contractor side, our sweet spot is, is people running bigger operations. So we have two pricing tiers. One's your sort of small work sites, and then your, your bigger work sites from, say, 50 to 200 people. Those are our real sweet spot because that's where you're dealing with so much information that, that it's really hard to manage on pen and paper. So that's what we're focused on. Yeah, I never thought I would get excited about health and safety. It's a pretty uh, boring and monotonous yeah. industry, but it's pretty pretty cool what you're working on and you know, I think 
we were talking about this before we started recording, but just the kind of cliche attitude that oil and gas field hands have towards safety. It's yeah. funny when our, our video buddies, they went to shoot a commercial for a uh, oil company out on a rig and they never been out before. So they're kind of nervous said, Hey, if you want to fit in, just tell those roughnecks. First thing you tell them is fuck that safety guy. And you'll fit, <laughs> you'll fit right in. So, yeah. but if we, if we can come up with some innovative technology that makes the process easier for everybody and actually has actionable results, yeah. I think that it'll be well, well, received within yeah. the industry so well i was an operations guy before i was forced to be a safety guy and i think <laughs> I, I have a lot of that same <laughs> so, perspective so, so. so you know about it then. exactly well man it's a great conversation where can people find you if they want to reach out to you opslock.com is our website i think all my contact information is there okay uh, you want to send me an email joe at opslock.com no spam please but otherwise feel <laughs> we'll throw all that in the touch. show notes too so yeah you guys can find yeah that. they find you on linkedin yeah linkedin linkedin joe, joe awesome. meadows that's me all right Good deal. Cool, man. Thanks for coming. Totally. Thanks, guys. Go, 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 go.